This is an Equity Bates Media podcast. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Talk money to me. Hello and welcome to Talk Money to Me. I'm Candace Burke. And I'm Felicity Thomas. Now in this episode, we're going to be chatting with David Garofalo, who was well known in the gold mining space. He has over 30 years experience in the creation and growth of multi-billion sustainable mining businesses on a global scale. David is chatting with us today in his current role and capacity as chairman and CEO of the US listed business called Gold Royalty and the ticker is G-R-O-Y. And it is on the New York Stock Exchange. Now, prior to joining Gold Royalty, he served as a CEO of Gold Corp until it sailed to Newmont, which you would have heard about in April 2019. And before that, he was the president and CEO of Hud Bay Minerals and the chief financial officer of Agnico Eagle Limited. Now, a little bit more background on Groy to set the scene for our In Conversation today with David, Groy offers investors exposure to precious metal prices while mitigating the downside risk given the limited exposure to operating and capital costs via their royalty structure. And I think what is well put by David in this episode is how he mentions that gold royalty has over 100 million exposure through their 200 different royalties at the moment to the asset class itself, which is Absolutely fantastic. Whereas versus if you just go out and buy the head stock, the miner itself, they might produce, you know, 6 million tonnes an ounce, for example. So this is why we wanted to bring you this episode and exactly what a gold royalty structure means, which we will explain, or in fact, David will explain in this chat. It's also really timely, right, Felicity, given a lot of market uncertainty and volatility being priced into the market, plus combining with stubborn inflation, which David gets into, a tight labour market and the backdrop of the fastest rate rise we've seen over a 12-month period. So gold as an asset class, historically, you may have heard this, has been coined a safe haven for investors. So that is why we wanted to bring David on the podcast to hear exactly where he's finding value and what's exciting him in the gold space. And so with that, before we get into our conversation, a quick reminder, our chat today is not considered personal advice. Even though we're registered advisors at Shoreham Partners, please note that this podcast and the content discussed does not constitute financial advice, nor is it a financial product. And everything is based on facts known at the time as the 4th of April, 2023. So welcome, David, to Talk Money to Me. We're super excited to have you on the show. Thank you very much for having me on. I'm delighted to be here. So we want to kick off our conversation Really to set the scene, you know, on what's going on in the markets, we'd love to hear your thoughts and what you're seeing and feeling about the markets at the moment. Well, what I'm seeing is the evidence of significant accesses introduced into the monetary system really since the great financial crisis back in 2008, when there was a massive expansion of money supply on a global coordinated basis by central banks around the world. 
And that continued on an unremitting basis, really, until about a year ago when inflation started to rear its ugly head, inevitably, uh, after that kind of massive expansion of money supply, it was inevitable that you would see hard asset price inflation. And we saw that. The catalyst was COVID. There was there was likely to be some catalyst. We, we couldn't have predicted a pandemic after 100 years, but uh, that was a catalyst for supply chain disruptions and a lot of excess that was introduced in the system manifested itself in inflation, unlike anything we've seen since the 1970s. Very much so. And I guess the here and the now, like, the, you know, January was a bit of a boost in the markets and then it was kind of taken away again in Feb and then March was all over the place with the banking crisis. But set the scene with what you're seeing in the gold price since really the end of 2022 leading into this year. Yeah, we're starting to see gold approach its all-time nominal high again, which is just under $2,100 US per ounce. And again, I think that's just reflective of the excesses in the money system um, over the course of the last 15 years since the great financial crisis. And gold is the one currency that can't be printed. It's quite finite in quantity. And inevitably, there will be a flight of capital in an inflationary environment into an asset that preserves capital. Inflation is quite insidious. It eats away at your savings, your purchasing power, and gold preserves that. And inevitably, investors are seeing the value of holding gold, particularly in an environment where interest rates are negative on a real basis. When you take the nominal interest rates, even though they are considerably higher than they were a year ago, and deduct inflation from that, we're still deeply into negative territory. So on a real basis, you're not preserving your capital by buying treasury bills, even though interest rates are higher because inflation is eating away that return and then some. Another common investment tagline is that gold actually offers a nice hedge against inflation. However, throughout 2022, when inflation was running wild, gold overall didn't really hold up. You know, we saw investors wanting to run to even safer investments in the form of cash and low risk government bonds. So I guess, why do you think 2022 was not a great year for gold? Look, there was always a delayed reaction on the outset of a gold rally. Um, Invariably, as interest rates start to decline, capital starts to flow into gold, but it doesn't happen overnight. Nothing goes up in a straight line. But if you look at gold's performance over a 50-year history, 10-year history, 20 years history, but a 50-year history is very telling because it goes back to when the U.S. dollar was decoupled from the gold standard. So really, Mass or mass the significant volatility that occurs in short periods of time, like we experienced last year, and the negative correlation between the gold price and real interest rates is dramatic over time. And we are in a period where the interest rate cycle is going to dive deeper and deeper into negative territory because not only is inflation going to accelerate, but I think because of the financial contagion that we're starting to see the early onset of, central banks are going to have to pivot on nominal rates as well. So that's going to amplify the downward swing in interest rates on a real basis. Inflation will accelerate, nominal rates will go up, and the gold price will do exceedingly well. And as demonstrated, it does exceedingly well uh, in those types of interest rate cycles. So that's quite contrary to what the market's pricing in, that we're in a deflationary environment. Um, Perhaps, you know, as you're saying, there's another shoe to drop with the banking mini crisis that we've seen in the US. But you're saying, you know, you think inflation will remain stubbornly high and then therefore gold will do well. So I just want to touch on that before we go into the outlook. Where you said that it's a delayed reaction, you know, gold doesn't just rally overnight. Are we therefore at the beginning of the next gold cycle, do you think? Yeah. And again, if you look back to the last inflation cycle, and and there's a lot of similarities between that inflation cycle and this one, you know, the 
the U.S. dollar was decoupled from the gold standard back in the early 1970s. And I would say that fiat currencies at the onset of the great financial crisis in 2008 was decoupled from any intrinsic backing whatsoever. And we saw a massive expansion of money supply. It was done in the early 1970s to fund a war in Vietnam. You know, the government had to fund that. And the only way to do that was to print money. And that's why they abandoned the gold standard. We have a war in Europe right now. Back in the 70s, we had an oil embargo. Today, we have an energy embargo. It's self-imposed. We're not buying Russian energy products, but there's that similarity as well. Back then, the other big uh, big dynamic was debt levels. You know, debt levels globally were about 100% of GDP. Today, it's three and a half times that. So the central banks really are, are torn. Uh, they want to fight inflation, but the reality is with those ty- types of debt levels, uh, there's no fiscally responsible way for them to repay the debt or for the governments to repay the debt. So they're going to have to inflate it away. Uh, they can't hope to raise interest rates to a level sufficient to tame inflation as they did in the 70s and 80s, because those debt levels were much more manageable. Uh, today, they simply are not. They're unsustainable. And the only way to deal with them is inflated away. Uh, they need to bring debt service costs down. In the U.S., for example, just in the last 18 months, debt service costs have ballooned. They've doubled to about a trillion dollars a year, which is one out of every seven dollars of tax revenue generated in the U.S. Another 200 basis point increase in interest rates would double again that debt service. It clearly is unsustainable without sacrificing social programs, infrastructure, and the like. So again, the only realistic thing for central banks to do is to continue to cut rates or bring rates back down, both on a nominal or real basis, to maintain debt service levels at a, a reasonable level. And that will inevitably uh, result in, in that debt being inflated away and a continued uh, significant stubborn inflation going forward. We're, we're in a deeply entrenched inflationary cycle, and that's likely to accelerate rather than go the other way around. If we look ahead and we look at gold for the remainder of 2023, do you think as an asset class, investors can look to park funds in gold for the years to come as a defensive allocation to their portfolio? Absolutely. Um, I think it's always an important part of everybody's portfolio, both physical gold, equities that are tied to gold. I think they tend to provide leverage to the gold price, uh, typically 10 to 15 percent of the portfolio to provide that insurance against inflation. And also, I would say, um, uh, a, a lagging general equity market in the face of stubborn inflation, a stagflationary environment like we're uh, inevitably going to experience. Look, I, I'm, I'm calling for gold at $3,000 an ounce in this cycle in, in, as soon as this year. And $3,000 an ounce is not a number I've just pulled out of the air. It's looking at the real cyclical high for gold in the last inflation cycle. In the early 1980s, it was about $850 an ounce at peak. Uh, but if you inflation adjust that to $2023, that brings it to $3,000 an ounce. I think there's no reason we can't achieve that kind of high water mark. And beyond that, I think all the ingredients are there. I think the potential for inflation to be much more stubborn and prolonged than it was in the 70s and 80s is is much higher because of the inability of the central banks and governments to really repay the debt and deal with the debt levels they've strapped on since the great financial crisis uh, 15 years ago. I think you have mentioned um, previously to Candice and I that, you know, you can look at gold miners, but obviously with gold miners, they've got their other issues with your labour costs, inflation, shortages. So do you have any comments uh, around that? No, absolutely. And, you know, if you believe in gold as an asset class, you know, the question you have to ask yourself is how do you best 
play it. You can buy the physical, and we've talked about that. I think it's important to have some physical gold in the portfolio. It's risk-free. It's nobody's obligation. Um, it has physical intrinsic value. Um, you can store it, and you can go into any country in the world and talk to virtually anybody in the world. And I think everybody uh, appreciates the intrinsic value of gold. You can't say that for cryptocurrency, clearly. Um, but you can certainly say that for gold. Uh, or, or any, even when cryptocurrency was at its peak, it's not something that was easily fungible and transportable into any country in the world. That's certainly the case for gold and has been for four millennia. Uh, the value of gold is recognized by virtually every human being on this planet. That's not the case for cryptocurrency. Yeah, because there's not an infinite amount of gold, essentially, whilst I know with cryptocurrency, there can be infinite amounts of cryptocurrency released and new cryptocurrency. You're not having new gold, for example. No, and in fact, if you took all the gold that's been mined since the beginning of time, it would fit into one Olympic-sized swimming pool. So volumetrically, it's tiny. Um, a fraction of 1% of global assets are allocated to gold. Uh, it would require a small reallocation of investable capital into gold to really cause an explosive movement in the gold price. And in fact, there's a remarkable inelasticity of supply to price. Uh, you know, we can't instantly turn on new supply in the mining industry, even in the face of higher gold prices, because it's so difficult to build new mines. And reserves in the ground are down 40% from their peak in 2012 because of significant underinvestment and exploration in new mine development. Capacity utilization in our industry is close to 100%. So there are no idle mines sitting around waiting to be flicked on in response to a higher gold price. It would add very, very small incremental supply into the market. So really, there isn't going to be that supply side response that would squelch a significant rally in the gold price. But then you, you still have to ask yourself as an investor, how do you best play the gold price in a rising, rising, an explosively rising gold price environment? And you, as I said, you can buy the physical. Uh, but you know, traditionally, also when people are looking for leverage of the gold price, they would buy the mining equities because typically, if gold went up 10, 20, 30 percent then the profit margins should go up disproportionately higher for the mining companies. And that hasn't been the case of recent times because mining companies are not immune from inflation in the general economy. In fact, 60% of their costs are labor and energy. And labor and energy has seen dramatic inflation of late. Energy costs are affecting the rest of the supply chain as well. And so they are experiencing significant cost resets in the business. And that's undermined that leverage proposition that investors are looking for in the mining equities. And they've significantly underperformed both the commodity and I would say also royalty and streaming companies. And that's the other way to play the gold sector is in streaming and royalty companies, because typically a royalty and stream are structured to uh, give you exposure to the top line at a mine site, just the revenue. Uh, you get a percentage of the revenue, either in cash or in kind, and you're completely insulated from operating capital cost inflation at the mine site. So traditionally, royalty companies are the lowest risk way to play uh, the commodity and get that leverage to the upside in the gold price, but leverage to expiration as well, because as these operating companies who run the assets explore their properties and grow them geologically, they're looking to extend my lives, the royalties extend to those geological extensions of the deposits. So we get the expiration upside in royalty companies and we get the gold upside, but again, with complete insulation from 
you know, operating capital cost inflation. What David's saying, guys, because to put some context, a lot of our listeners here at Talk Money to Me, we are a global podcast, but a lot of them are Australian investors. So typically us Aussies would love to hold the physical miners, the diversified miners, you know, Newcrest, Evolution Mining, even the big guys like BHP. As he's saying, everyone has some exposure to gold. But you should also look offshore and what the North American market does really well is the gold royalty system and structure, which we'll get into that after the ad break on exactly how that works in more detail. So really to summarize, before we move on, David, who are your competitors in this space? You know, there's a few of them. Um, they're the category killers in the space. And, and I imagine many of your listeners have heard of Franco Nevada, Wheat and Precious Metals and Royal Gold, uh, all North American listed companies uh, with royalty assets throughout the world. Uh, and they're typically at about 20 to $30 billion market cap and trading at two to three times net asset value. So very rich multiples. And I think uh, deservedly so because they offer that low risk model that I talked about earlier on. They offer scale. Uh, they have significant market caps, uh, good trading liquidity, and they offer blue chip portfolios and strong dividends. But what they don't offer uh, is growth. Uh, it's very difficult to grow off of that kind of market cap scale. Um, and that's what the smaller cap universe in the royalty space offers us. Now we're going to hear more from David about the structure of gold royalty and his latest investments. But before we do all that, we're going to take a quick break and hear from our sponsors. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Okay, so David, can you tell us what's the difference between a royalty and a stream? And I guess what's the typical structure of your gold royalties from beginning to end? Certainly. Um, well, a royalty is basically a percentage of the revenue at a mine site. So you get paid in cash. Whereas a stream, you actually get paid in kind. You get a percentage of the production and then you sell the gold uh, onto a dealer uh, in your own right as a royalty and streaming company. And quite often that's used interchangeably. Uh, we're set up at Gold Royalty Corp to do both royalties and streams. Um, so, and quite often royalty and streaming companies do both. Um, it's not uncommon. So David, I think I saw on your latest market update, you have about 190 or so different royalties. So correct me if I'm wrong, but we'd love to hear, you know, what you've currently been looking at to add to GOIY and how do you actually walk us through the investment philosophy 
and I guess DD to, to find the right royalty to add to the overall company? Well, actually, today we stand at 216 royalties, almost exclusively in the Americas, with a heavy concentration of royalties in Nevada, Quebec, and Ontario. And the royalty structure actually is a perpetual uh, asset on on the underlying mine that we own royalties on. So in other words, they last forever. Uh, they're adhered to the property permanently, even if operators change hands, even if the operator goes bankrupt. Uh, we are able to maintain that royalty in perpetuity, which provides our shareholders with infinite optionality. Um, and that's a really attractive part of the royalty model. Uh, and that's what affords us the expiration upside that I talked about earlier on. Uh, so as our deposits are drilled out, we get the upside uh, as the deposit grows because our royalties are not only in existing reserves, but any growth in reserves realized through the expiration efforts of our operating partners. And the other thing I, I should add is these royalties, once they're owned, they're bought and paid for. Uh, we own all of our 216 royalties outright. We never have to put another dime in them. Uh, and so as these assets are uh, uh, expanded, as they are uh, grown, uh, as they're put into production, we never have any capital calls. Once we own them, we own them outright. And we get the upside that comes with them uh, through the operating expiration efforts, development efforts, expansion efforts of our operators who have to come up with the capital uh, to optimize their assets. So it could really be seen as one of the most defensive ways to play gold, really, better than holding the asset and better than investing in a gold mining company. I guess for our listeners, you know, you said you've got 216. Uh, what was the first one and what's the most recent company as well? That would be really interesting. Well, we started out with 18 royalties uh, at our IPO on some development stage assets in the Americas from our former parent company, Gold Mining Inc. And those development stage assets collectively had 32 million ounces of gold equivalent resource on them. Uh, that's under 43101 in Canada uh, and, and the equivalent in Australia. And then we IPO'd the company, raised $90 million US in March of 2021, used our currency to start rolling up some of our competitors. And that grew a royalty portfolio from that initial 18 to 190 royalties. And then we've undertaken a series of project financings, the acquisition of some third-party royalties. And we've generated our own royalties organically by staking expiration claims around existing mines and then vending those properties out to the operators and taking a royalty back in return. In fact, 40 of our 216 royalties were generated organically through our sweat equity. In other words, it costs us nothing to buy them. And we get infinite rates of return as those operators put those properties into productive use. So really, if you look at us, even though we're a relatively young company, we generate royalties through all the available means uh, that the seniors typically do. And that speaks to the depth and breadth of our management team and board. We have 400 years of collective experience within our board and management which gives us the distinct advantage of being able to accelerate our growth because we're quite experienced. We have uh, incredible contacts with the industry. Uh, we get in front of opportunities ahead of our competitors because there isn't anybody in the industry that one of my board or management can't pick up the phone and talk to. So are you at the point with the contracts of the gold royalties that you, as you're saying, can organically grow and look to expand it out? Like, is there a magic number of how many you would like to have in the portfolio? You know, that's the great thing about our business is it's eminently scalable. I have eight full-time equivalent employees and I could run a business 10 times the size. I could run it with two, three, four, five thousand 5,000 royalties 
with the same complement of employees. That means every incremental dollar of revenue falls right to the bottom line and allows us to look at increasing our dividend. We already pay a 1.9% yield on the stock. Uh, 10 months after IPO, we were able to introduce a dividend because of the cash flow we were already generating from that immense royalty portfolio. And we have the prospect with 60% compounded annual growth in our revenue over the next five to 10 years to increase that dividend significantly. And the other value of of this model is the fact that uh, there really is no limit to how much diversification we can achieve. Uh, And that's a great thing about the model relative to the operators. You know, when I was running Gold Corp, my former company, before I merged it with Newmont, the largest gold merger in history in 2019, we had 20,000 employees and we had about a dozen operations around the world. And I can tell you, it would have been a law of diminishing returns if we added any more operations to that. It became impractical for us to run any more than a dozen to 15 mines across the world. And I would tell you that even the biggest gold companies today can't hope to effectively manage more than that. So there's a limit to how much an operating company can diversify. That's certainly not the case with royalty companies. We're just managing contracts and collecting checks. It's a very, very simple business. Now, I know that you all made up, your portfolio is made up of a few different sub-segments. So you've got producing, developing, advanced exploration and early exploration. What's the kind of makeup of the portfolio at the moment and what kind of revenue are you generating? Yeah, so we have seven uh, in production. We have another 14 in construction. And those construction stage assets are really what's driving the revenue growth over the next several years at about 60% compounded annual growth. And we're growing from a standing start two years ago when we had zero revenue. Uh, Last year, we had $6 million in revenue. This year, we're going to have a similar level. And then we're going to have a big step up next year to about $8 million in revenue and then 60% growth from there over the course of the next five to 10 years. By the end of the decade, we'll be at $60 million of annual revenue. And that's against a G&A profile of only $7 million. So the margins become quite significant. We start to achieve significant economies of scale as a result of these development stage assets starting to achieve commercial production. And as you correctly point out, we have about 180 uh, exploration, early stage exploration Uh, projects that provide us a long organic pipeline of growth for the foreseeable future. And as I said earlier on, those royalties are all bought and paid for. They give our shareholders infinite optionality. Fantastic. So there's a lot of upside there. So David, I just want to ask you the, I guess, best case and worst case scenario. You mentioned US uh, 3000 an ounce for the gold price. So what does that do if it happens in the next six months to your bottom line revenue number? And then the flip side, are you stress testing the worst case scenario in the gold price? Yes, certainly. I mean, we we use 1650 uh, US per ounce long-term gold prices to evaluate opportunities uh, to calculate our own uh, projections of revenue. So we're already baking in a gold price that's about uh, 20% lower than what we're currently experiencing uh, at about $2,000 an ounce US. So this, there's an embedded conservatism in our forecasts. Uh, the reserve calculations of our underlying operators are typically done at even uh, lower prices than that. I think the average reserve profile is done at about $1,400 an ounce across our portfolio. And we have exposure to over 100 million ounces of reserves within that portfolio of over 200 royalties. So there's an embedded conservatism in that. But again, given our very low cost structure, our very light GNA, uh, you know, gold prices could go to to below $1,000 an ounce. We'd still be a very sustainable business because we don't have a significant cost structure. We have a very, very high margin business 
because uh, we have a small complement of employees, eight full-time equivalent employees to manage a portfolio of over 200 royalties. Okay, so you're mainly exposed to the North American market, Ontario in Canada and Nevada in the US. Why is that? I mean, do you have any positions in Australia or why are you mostly focused on the North American market? Well, the vast majority of royalty companies, including the ones that we've rolled up since our IPO, were focused on the Americas because that's where the royalty model is very maturely developed. It's not so much so in Australia. Uh, generally, royalties are not uh, have not been received historically as a source of capital um, for the Australian markets uh, and the explorers and developers. And, and and that's likely to change over time because it has proven itself as a very effective, low-cost uh, source of capital for the explorers and developers. But the Australian market has been much more buoyant uh, for the developers and explorers than the North American ha- market has. There's been much more consistent access to capital for the juniors in the Australian market than there has been in North America, where it's been much more cyclical. And I would attribute that to the superannuation program in, in Australia, where there's a consistent flow of fresh capital into the general equity markets. And that's translated into more consistent capital of explorers and developers. But we are looking in Australia. Uh, Australia is one of our preferred jurisdictions in which to own royalties. Uh, Ontario, Quebec, and Nevada are perennially, uh, where we have the majority, vast majority of our royalties by number and market, market value, um, are perennially rated the three of the top five jurisdictions in the world for mineral potential, low political risk, and low regulatory risk. Western Australia is right up there in the top five perennially as well. So that's certainly uh, a jurisdiction we've looked at in the past for opportunities and we'll continue to, to search for, for new opportunities. We're also looking in Africa in, in good jurisdictions there. There's a number there that are quite attractive, again, for mineral potential and relatively low political risk. And so I would expect that over time, you'll start to see us diversify a little bit outside of our North American base. Uh, so what asset in your existing portfolio kind of excites you the most? Well, you know, there are, there are a great number of them, but I would say the fact that we have three cornerstone assets that make up the foundation of our business. We have a royalty in Canada's biggest producing gold mine, Canadian Malartic in Quebec. We also have a royalty in what will be Canada's second biggest producing gold mine, Cote, in Ontario, when it comes into production in the first quarter of next year. It's already 75% constructed. And then we have a royalty on the U.S.'s biggest producing gold mine, Gold Strike, uh, or more specifically, the underground extension of Gold Strike. We have an exclusive royalty on that that we generated organically. We staked the property right beside Gold Strike. And as Barrick started to drill into the underground, we vended the property to them and took a royalty back in return. So effectively, the royalty costs us nothing, but there's a significant underground resource there that has a grade that's seven times what they're mining from the open pit. So it's likely to be incorporated into the mine plan by Barrick and Newmont in the short term. Those foundational assets, which have multi-decades of reserves ahead of them, will be providing annuities to our shareholders long after I'm gone and long after this management team's gone. It's been passed on to the next generation. That's really the exciting part uh, of our business is those foundational assets. Franco, Nevada, which has a $30 billion market cap, was built on the foundation of one asset, Gold Strike which ironically we have a royalty on the underground extension of. Gold Strike is still the foundational asset of Franco, Nevada, more than 30 years after its founding. And we have three foundational assets. So you can imagine what we can achieve with three cornerstone assets within our portfolio. And look what Franco's done with one. 
and they've obviously diversified extensively since then, but they still rely on that asset really to drive their cash flow above all other assets within their portfolio. We have three of those. Absolutely. That's so good to hear. I think that's really good for our listeners who are interested in investing. Candice, we really need to go to the Americas and start running around staking. Staking, it seems like. That's it. (laughs) It seems like a mad rush to stake to get these contracts in place. Well, we're we're very fortunate and we have a couple of individuals within our company that we inherited through our consolidation efforts. Jerry Boffman, uh, who runs our Reno office, was a co-founder of Ely Gold, one of the companies we took over in 2021. And Glenn Mullen uh, was the founder of Golden Valley, a company we took over in 2021 as well. And he's based in Valdor, Quebec. Both Jerry and Glenn bring 35 years of prospecting experience. They're both very accomplished geologists. And they pursue separately um, and coincidentally the same model. We're very lucky to have both of them in the organization now. And again, they stake exploration claims around existing mines, existing deposits, and just wait for the neighbors to come knock on the door. And then they vend the properties and take a royalty back. So these two gentlemen are constantly generating royalty opportunities for for us through their sweat equity. Really glad that you have them because if you had me running around with a stake, I wouldn't know what I was staking because I'm not a (laughs) geologist by trade. Nor would I. Nor would I. So David, I would love to end the conversation with you um, with really what's quite topical in the the gold space is M&A. So the Newcrest rejection of Newmont's 17 billion takeover offer, that was sort of a shock to the market. You know, initially it liked it uh, and then it was sort of a bit volatile, but then obviously with the gold price rally, the stock is up overall. But what's your take on this? Do you think it was a good move? I think it, I think it's just a matter of a bit offer spread on that one. I think that deal will inevitably happen. And the reason it will happen is because consolidation in a sector is inevitable when they haven't been investing back in the ground to replace depleting reserves. You know, we came out of the credit crisis with a strong run in the gold price, and that stimulated all sorts of exploration efforts globally. And that's why reserves achieved an all-time high by 2012 as a result of multi-years of access to capital for the juniors in the sector and investment in the ground by the established producers. Since then, it's been a steady decline. Uh, After significant cost inflation coming out of the credit crisis, investors demanded the mining companies return capital. And that meant they had to choose between returning capital, investing back in the business, and they chose to return capital, deleverage, and that resulted in a significant deterioration in reserves globally, down 40%. Well, if you're not finding it in the ground, you're going to have to buy it. And the only way to buy it is through merger, uh, mergers of companies. Uh, it's become an existential imperative for the bigger established producers in the sector to buy other producers to replace their depleting reserves and production profile. I remember back in 2019 when Gary Goldberg at Newmont and I uh, engineered the merger, what was the largest gold merger in history, a $32 billion merger between Newmont and Gold Corp. And I remember Gary and I sitting down saying, on a collective basis, our two companies produce seven and a half million ounces, but you know what? We're going to focus on the best assets and just uh, perpetually produce six million ounces of production out of the reserve base that we have. Well, four years later, just four years later, Newmont already can't sustain that six million ounces a year of production. So they're going to have to cannibalize somebody else to do that. And that uh, merry-go-round will continue for the foreseeable future. They're on a treadmill now where they have declining reserves, declining production, and they're looking at each other for, you know, okay, who can we take over to replace their depleting reserves in production? Eventually, that will exhaust itself, that M&A uh, cycle that we find ourselves in. 
uh, they'll run out of targets and they're inevitably going to have to invest back in the ground. But it's not an overnight reversal of that downward trajectory in reserves. Typically from discovery to first production, it's 15 to 20 years. And it's given that there's been a significant lack of discovery and capital focused on discovery, it's going to be many, many years before that downward trajectory in reserves and production is reversed. So M&A is going to rule the day in the meantime. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of M&A going on in all different uh, commodities in the resource sector as well. I think it's really interesting because it kind of just comes back to your supply demand, right? There's not enough supply to meet demand. My question for you, though, David, if I was looking to start my first investment in a gold royalties company, why would we go with Gold Royalties Corp over one of the larger players that you mentioned, like Franco Nevada, Weed and Precious Metals and Royal Gold? I mean, what's your point of differentiation? It's growth. Um, 60% Kager 60% in revenue can't be offered by the big guys. Uh, Franco Nevada could take out all the small cap royalty companies in the entire royalty space, and it would move the needle for them. They, they can't hope to offer growth, even though they offer tremendous quality and great management, a great track record. What they can't offer is growth. It's hard to imagine Franco Nevada going up fivefold, even in a rising gold price environment. It's not hard to imagine gold royalty going up fivefold, particularly when you consider the quality of our asset base and the diversity of our asset base. So again, we have a royalty in the three biggest producing gold mines in North America, and we have 216 royalties and the highest growth profile in the entire sector, even in a flat gold price environment. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, because your market cap's still quite small at $312 million, um, and you're going to have obviously a growing dividend also. So we have a question for you. If you were to be a gold company, what one would you be and why? Uh, in terms of the producers? Yeah, uh, well, I have to go back to one of my old companies, Igneco Eagle, where I was CFO for 12 years. And they've emerged as uh, the third biggest producer in the world uh, since the uh, the takeout of, of Humana recently, along with Pan America. Um, I, and again, I speak to the quality and diversity of their profile. Uh, portfolio in, the, in, in some of the best jurisdictions in the world. Um, they have reasonable growth for a senior company, a reasonably low cost structure because they are in uh, well-infrastructured areas in which they operate. They have a significant mineral endowment. That one, uh, you know, maybe a sentimental pick, but it's certainly one based on good fundamentals as well. Well, I think, honestly, everyone who's been listening to this podcast today is 100% sold on gold, in particular gold royalties. So you've sold me. Um, I think it sounds like a really, really, really good investment for the next, you know, 20 plus years. Well, thank you very much. As Felicity, you know, quite rightly said, we are sold on gold. That's a nice little rhyme for you to end the episode. Um, if you're looking it up on your Bloomberg or wherever you look for your investment ideas, the ticker is G-R-O-Y on the New York Stock Exchange. Now, before we sign off, please remember, although Felicity and I are financial advisors at Shoring Partners, as always, our discussion today does not constitute as personal financial advice. You should always go out and seek your own professional financial advice before you make your investment decisions. Today, the conversation are based on the facts known at the time of recording, which is the 4th of April, 2023. Yeah, I thought that was a really, really interesting episode and a really great way to actually play gold for the next 10, 20 years, because you really do get the best of both worlds. So make sure you follow us on at Talk Money To Me podcast for daily market updates. If you enjoyed the podcast, please give us a five-star review. And remember, if you have any questions, or you want to ask us any questions, please email us at tmtm at equitymates.com. We'll be back next week. Until next time. See you then. 
Talk Money to Me is a product of Equity Mates Media. All information in this podcast is for education and entertainment purposes only. Equity Mates gives listeners access to information and educational content provided by a range of financial service professionals. It is not intended as a substitute for professional finance, legal, or tax advice. The hosts of Talk Money to Me are not aware of your personal financial circumstances. Equity Mates Media does not operate under an Australian financial services license and relies on the exemption available under the Corporations Act 2001 in respect of any information or advice given. Before making any financial decisions, you should read the product disclosure statement and, if necessary, consult a licensed financial professional. Do not take financial advice from a podcast. For more information, head to the disclaimer page on the Equity Mates website where you can find the ASIC resources and find a registered financial professional near you. In the spirit of reconciliation, Equity Mates Media and the hosts of Talk Money to Me acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. 